This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. Because if you can tell me what your habits are, I can tell you what sort of a person you are. I can tell you what your future looks like. But like I always say, life is 10% what happens to you. It's 90% what you do about it. The people who are most effective in the workplace believe that their future is going to be bigger than their past. When people don't believe that their future is going to be bigger than their past, they begin to disengage. You're listening to The Circuit of Success, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve success in every facet of life, only on the lineupmedia.fm podcast network. Now, your host, Brett Gilliland. Welcome to The Circuit of Success. I'm your host, Brett Gilliland. Today, I've got Marty Strong with me. Marty, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks, Brett. Good. Well, it's awesome to have you, man. I, I enjoy talking to authors, business leaders, people that were Navy SEALs. And guess what? You happen to be all three of those things. So that's kind of a big deal, huh? That's a hat trick. <laughs> that's a hat trick. So he is a former SEAL. He is a CEO and a chief strategy officer of a company. Uh, he's an author of 10 total books, uh, but your newest one, Be Nimble, comes out uh, into this year. Correct. And then uh, Be Visionary, which... Right over here, I guess, over my shoulder, be visionary, visionary wealth advisors. We like that word. Uh, we'll talk about that as well coming out next year, right? So, That's uh, correct. So excited to have you, man. It's, uh, it's uh, been looking forward to this. But uh, like on every show, Marty, we like to start out with just kind of what's made you the man you are today. You don't just wake up and write 10 books and become a CEO and become a SEAL and, and do all things. So that, that there was some stuff that was defining moments probably in your life. And so why don't you maybe give us as far back as you want to go, I know it's okay. an open-ended question, but um, kind of what's made you the man you are today? Yeah, it's um, it's it's kind of a strange a strange mix because most people that know me would say that I'm a um, a planner. I'm I'm a strategist. I'm always thinking out multiple paths. And then when I try to answer the question that you just posed, it's all non-linear. It's it wasn't <laughs> planned. It's all flying by the seat of my pants or, you know, get on one train instead of the other train and went, you know, a totally different yeah. direction in my life. So, uh, it, I'll start off. I, I, I joined the Navy when I was 17 with the intention of becoming a radar and air traffic control expert. Like my father had been in the Korean war in the Navy and through a mix up of orders, uh, I ended up in Coronado, California, where basic seal training is. And I explained you know, what I thought I was supposed to be doing, I was supposed to be showing up at a ship after going through 17 weeks of training. And one of the senior enlisted SEALs there at the training center in Coronado talked me and talked me into staying. And, you know, he said, and I was like 125 pounds, you know, I didn't look yeah. like some kind of a you know, Marvel hero on TV. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and so I said, all right, you know, he, I mean, it wasn't a, an easy conversation, but eventually he talked me into, into the idea. And then if, if for some reason I quit, cause it's a voluntary program, I could just go back to what I was trained to do by the Navy, which is to, as to uh, do radar and air traffic control. So I was a competitive swimmer in high school. I played football, I wrestled, I played basketball and I lived in Hawaii for two years. And so I, I surfed and I wasn't afraid of big waves and things. So all those things kind of came together being uh, from a divorced family, probably, um, had a lot to do with my psychological resilience. Yeah. Although I don't, I don't think I understood that at the time. 
So uh, I started with a class of 126 guys. And uh, six months later, we had 13 of us left from the original 126. Yeah. And I was off to the races and the SEAL teams for the next 20 years. Yeah, that's got to be very humbling, isn't it? Would you say 126 down to 13? And that's after the Navy traditionally probably screens through a couple of thousand to get to that starting class number of 126 yeah. that meet all the criteria to start. So you're not one of the guys that just said, hey, I want to be a Navy SEAL from the beginning. You, you just it just kind of just happened to what you were saying. That's right. And, and back when I went in, uh, SEALs were a lot more secretive. We didn't have an actual Navy recruiting program for SEALs. Okay. It was kind of word of mouth. They weren't a big organization. There was only a, a SEAL Team 1 on the West Coast and SEAL Team 2 on the East Coast. The, um, there were some other special ops teams in the Navy, which were uh, called underwater demolition teams. They had a different mission, although everybody that was at those teams went through the basic uh, SEAL course in Coronado. They were all kind of put together in 1983, 84, and they were all redesignated SEAL teams at that point. But, you know, you're talking about 250 SEALs maybe when I went in and another 300 um, UDT frogmen. And then nowadays it's probably around 2,800 to 3,000 active duty okay. SEALs. Okay. So yeah, a lot, a lot different now. So talk to, let's kind of can compare and contrast, if you will, what you've learned in, in SEAL training, BUDS training, and then what you've learned in the boardroom, if you will. So the professional world, right? I would assume there's a lot of similarities there that can go both ways. Is that a fair statement? I think there's a lot more similarities in being a part of small or medium companies that are involved in scaling, scaling up or scaling down. I mean, scaling yeah. in both directions, are, it can be traumatic. Mostly the, um, the functional requirements, the challenges of trying to become something different, to morph, to pivot, to evolve into a different kind of company, a different kind of organization, a team, a division, a department, whatever, whatever is being changed. It causes the stress. It causes the um, kind of the crisis atmosphere. And a lot of that is what they screen for in the SEAL, in this initial SEAL sc screening and selection. And, and then they just reemphasize that and train you to, to prepare for it and handle it. You're already kind of psychologically um, predisposed to handling it better than the average person. But then they, they, they hone that and make that better. So you become a very calm person in a storm. And, and yeah. that's whether you're a technical expert as an enlisted SEAL, which I was for 10 years, or an officer leading things, which I was for the second 10 years. And that really helped in business because I found that, you know, obviously if the Navy is going to pay a couple of million dollars per SEAL to get them to that kind of mind, mindset and that, that capability, that's not what you find in the mix of an average company. No. So it was helpful for me and I didn't even realize how helpful it was going to be to other people. And I think other people in the, in the military in general find this once they step into a, a, a business or, or a non-military organization, and especially from elite units, it could be a fighter pilot or a green beret or a seal. You tend to be the, the, the strong pole in the tent during the storm. I mean, people see right. you calmly reacting to the chaos. They see you addressing the, the crisis with, you know, no fear and, and let's, let's figure out a way to fix this. Let's figure out a way to deal with this. And that's a direct translation from a prior life with a lot of risk, sliding out of ropes in the middle of the night, being shot at doing, you know, freezing, doing all the things you do as, as a military veteran. And, and that, you know, it helps better if you've been in the business for a while and you actually understand the business. 
Yep. But even if you don't completely, you can actually add a lot to morale and a lot to the to the um, the feeling of optimism instead of pessimism than uh, than the average person in a business organization would normally expect. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how do you do that though? Right. I mean, it's easy to say that now because you, you did it, but how did you get yourself mentally to that point to where in the chaos? So again, whether that's with the seals or whether that's at work, how do you, especially as a leader a CEO, whatever your title is, how do we stay calm in those times where there is crap flying around everywhere? A lot of it's about managing your expectations, which goes back to your psychology. So, you know, when I managed money with UBS, I had high net worth clients and most of them were self-made people. I'd say two thirds of them were high school graduates that were multimillionaires. Yep. Yep. All of them had stories of failing in business, not always to bankruptcy, but some of them had been bankrupt several times before they really took off. So if you go through that kind of crucible of experience as a small business um, owner and you survive and continue down that path, there's a point where one person's crisis is another person's you know, problem or challenge, or even an opportunity. So you build resilience through practicing crisis experiences. That's what they do in the, in the elite forces. They, they put you through training that are, that are as close as possible, trying to recreate combat environments, the austerity, the fear, the lack of control of what's going to happen to you. So you stop having expectations of, of always positive outcomes. The helicopter is not coming to pick you up. Okay. There's not going to be 10 guys there on the target. There's going to be a hundred guys on the target The the maps they gave you aren't right. They're actually wrong. And so when you start from that premise, you don't get all worked up and emotional when things aren't working out the way you just solve the problem set based on the facts in front of you. And, and that's, anybody can do that in business. That's not a seal thing, but you could train leaders either by creating exercises, case studies, or you take advantage of the moment when the crisis hits and you turn it into a training event and you explain to everybody, this is what we're going to learn from this. Yeah. Don't just be reacting and, and being affected by it. We're going to fix this, but we're going to, we're going to learn from this as a team. We're all going to get stronger. And the third or fourth time down the road, this happens to us. Piece of cake. Yeah. Well, I think it's also that the step behind the step behind the step that's also behind the, the corner over there. Right. I mean, I think that, in my leadership deal since 2006, basically, so a long time, 15 years, um, it, it, you got to have a plan B, a plan C, a plan D. Would you agree with that? Because I think the, the people I've talked to in the military, it's not just plan A and we think it's going to work. You've got you've to have, a, I don't know how many different plans, but a lot of them. Agree? Yeah, I think, so one of the, one of the mindsets that you're taught is, is it's contingency thinking, if you have time, then you can do contingency planning. You can have a plan A, B, C, and D. And that's always good because just like any other, you know, analytical process, you work out all these different paths. You look at a critical path. You look at the a lack of resources, a lack of information. What's the impact on the probability that particular path is going to be successful? But then back to what I was saying before, they also teach you how to con- be a contingent thinker because once you leave a safe place, and you're out there in the middle of the desert, the mountains, the jungle, the swamp, whatever it is, the ocean, and things aren't going to be, and things don't become uh, or evolve the way you thought they were. You have to now start being able to think contingently in the next five steps ahead for the next five minutes, the next 15 minutes, the next. So it's mo- it's less about the big planning component of it and more about just having a mindset, absorb the real information, 
what's the facts now on the ground, discard everything else because it's baggage. It doesn't matter anymore. So if you have the time, lay out contingency planning. I, I talk about that a lot more in the second book, Be Visionary, you know, as a way to be comfortable with pivoting when a, a probability, maybe a low probability event actually happens because you've thought through it with your team already yeah. to some extent. And, and you're in the, you know, you're a wealth, wealth guy. So you can do this with financial, you know, clients because you don't control the markets, right? You know, it, it's, you don't, you know, if you're on a train, you, you have some limited, you know, alterations to the expectations, right? But, That's right. but you don't control the markets. You don't control the economies. You don't control the different industries that the market represents or the different markets represent. And, uh, you know, you just have to get into a mindset that I want to understand the main drivers of the analysis. I want to try to have as many contingency plans as possible and have the plans offset risk as much as possible. But I also have to be a contingent thinker and be able to think three to five steps ahead in the moment. Yeah. What's around that corner and then what's down that alley kind of a thing. Yeah. That, and that's that visionary thing, right? That's what we talk about is what the future could or will be like is how you really define from uh, what a visionary is. Right. And that's what we're helping right. our clients with. But when, when you think about that, when you say that contingency plans, plan B, all that kind of stuff, but what is the mindset when it's going bad though, and you're in the thick of things, how do you stay positive or stay neutral? However you want to word it. How do you do that? So then, you know, Oh my gosh, this is happening. And then you start to freak out. <laughs> so um, I'm actually living that right now. Um, so we have, you know, the kind of the proverbial black swan event, and there's a couple of good books out there, but most of the analysis of, of black swans and companies, businesses, it, it shows that it's something that you might've known. You just ignored the information. It didn't match your expectations or, or you ignored it because it wasn't part of your data set or whatever. And it, that's fine. So, but it's a black swan. It is what it is. The real the real test and the real breakout or shakeout is what does the leadership do when they realize there's a black swan? And it kind of falls into three different categories in general. You go into denial and you mm. just say, well, I don't agree that it's a black swan. We're going to keep doing what we're doing and we'll get ourselves out of this just by, you know, knuckling down. The second is you have that kind of denial for a short period of time. And then you capitulate, realize the facts as you know them in your environment, your industry, whatever it is that you're operating in are no longer the facts that you've been using. And you have to throw out everything and start from scratch and create a new battle plan to go forward. And then the third category is they don't go into denial. Within hours, the leadership team says, this isn't, this isn't the world we were in 24 hours ago. It's a new world. Let's reconstruct what we have to do, reconstruct the company, our plans, our goals, what's achievable in the new normal and the new paradigm. And that's actually, those are the groups that tend to succeed. And the, that first group that goes into denial, they tend to miss this entire move. And a lot of times they end up losing value and kind of like Kodak with the digital photography thing. And they get picked up for pennies on the dollar by other companies because they just never, ever, ever accepted what, what had changed. Yep. So what I'm going you through think right about to your point about that Kodak, you think about blockbuster. I right. Mean, I mean, there's, um, I mean, uh, MySpace, yeah. VH, VHS and Betamax, you know, yeah. Betamax came out with the greatest product in the world. VHS, you know, the guys that did that looked at it and said, we can't match that quality for a lower price point, but how much quality do people really need? 
And what they, so they surveyed people and they said, well, we want to be able to videotape movies. Well, Betamax was set up for videotaping weddings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. With a, with a camcorder. So the VHS, you know, uh, geniuses, visionaries said, we'll come up with a, a little bit more of a rude visual experience, extend it so that you can tape it a, a feature length movie and we'll make a machine that plays it and takes it right off your TV. And Betamax just disappeared. You know, VHS came out cheaper product, more applicable and boom, that was the end of that. So there's, and I bet you for a while, Betamax said, yeah, that we have better quality. That'll never work. Right. Cause look at our quality, 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 because they were focused on that one element. So right now, and companies all over the United States are dealing with this. Um, the administration came out with a, with a uh, COVID vaccine mandate. So I am a CEO of two different kinds of companies. I have a healthcare company and I have a government contracting company. Yeah. And two of the industries that were pointed to in the, in the executive order were those two industries. So if you work for the federal government, 100% of your employees must be vaccinated or they, they can't work period. And the deadline's December 8th. So I got four or 500 people in that, in that boat. Wow. And on the healthcare side, if you are a medical provider, you will not be allowed in a medical care environment unless you're vaccinated. And I've got about 150 in that, in that world. So I've got say close to 650 people in two companies that as of a speech a week ago or a week and a half ago are suddenly not sure they're gonna have a job unless they get proof of vaccination. We didn't anticipate that in 10 weeks. Right. Yeah. And on the healthcare side, it's not, there's not even a timetable. Every hospital and every care environment can decide tomorrow. They're going to, if you don't show it at the door, you don't get in. And there's a lot of things in the news right now about uh, hospital systems and, and, and healthcare groups are, are, you know, already kicking out like 175, one day, 200. There's a story this morning about over a thousand in New York city and combined hospitals. So the Friday morning after the speech, our world changed. We suddenly went from just operating and executing our normal functions, the strategy, et cetera, to suddenly we had this huge problem and very little time to solve it. It wasn't something anybody would anticipate it. Right. Right. So that that's a long setup to answer your question. So I'll answer your question briefly. Having understood how black swan events are, are dealt with, with a high probability of success after the fact, meaning the group that immediately realizes the world's changed and just attack the attack the new the new uh, set of facts. That's what we did Friday morning, and that's that's what we've done every day since then. So we're attacking it like it's the new requirement. We're attacking. We're not sitting in a room going, "Why us?" or "Hey, right. I hope they come or up me. with some kind of yep. a waiver program that's going to make it go away." You know, we just. It is what it is. Let's go figure out how we're going to attack this thing. And I put a couple of people as like czars in charge of certain segments of it, census collection, et cetera. And we're off to the races. And that's what I would say to anybody. That's, that's what you got to do. Face up to it, sit in a room, get, a, get in front of a whiteboard, reinvent, yep. and, then, and then go. Well, you're, you're, you're going straight to the action part, right? The, in the circuits of success, the name of this podcast, or attitude, your belief system, your actions that ultimately get you the results. Right? And I always tell me, it doesn't matter what your attitude, I mean, it matters, right? When we're talking about the circuits, but if you don't take action, 
in this event, your black swan event here, we can go into denial. Like you said, we can go into a room and cry and pour me and pour this and why that. And, or number three is what you're doing is don't go to denial, reconstruct, attack the facts, come up with a game plan. That's action. Then execute and execute yep. it. Right. And have the discipline to execute it. And I think that's the thing right now is I always talk about so much about discipline is the things that we do as, as visionary wealth advisors, but even me personally over my career, it, it's not rocket science. It's just having the discipline to show up every day and do it day after day after day, even on the days you don't want to do it. That's what makes people successful. Right. Yes. Cause I'm, I mean, I'm a, I'm a strong believer in learning from anything. And being able to talk a lot about, especially in the beginning, there's a self-inventory for leaders. And then you've, you've done the inventory, kind of a SWOT analysis on yourself. And then you correct the issues you need to correct. And you continue doing the things that are strong, you know, strong attributes. So even on a bad day, even on a day where I don't want to go in, I try to turn it into, what can I learn from my mindset? Why am I, why do I have this mindset? What can I do to improve it? And if it's about something that's going to happen that day, I try to flip it so that it's essentially a positive, you know, you know, Mike Tyson, you know, his, his famous line about everybody's got a plan until they're punched in the face. Right. That's right. Yeah. Well, what do you, what do you learn when you're training as a boxer from being punched in the face? I mean, it doesn't seem like that would be a good way to teach somebody. It is. You learn how to duck and dodge and you learn why it's important to have fast feet. You know, <laughs> there's, there's, there's a lot of things you learn from being punched in the nose. And sometimes that's what you're really running into in life or in business getting punched in the nose is an opportunity to figure something out and be stronger the next day. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great feedback. And so what would you say for you, the CEO of, of multiple companies, you talk about hundreds of employees on both sides. What are you finding are the culture growers for your, for your companies and the culture killers? <laughs> Anything stand out there for you? Well, in this vein, a culture killer, if you allowed it to persist would be people that are, that are, psychologically challenged by change and the sudden kind of dark cloud of risk that something like I think a black swan would cause, right? If you let them run around the building for a while, yep. they will, they will start to infect everybody. And it's going to be harder for the leadership team to get everybody, you know, to execute and believe in it and say, look, you know, we're not concerned. We got a plan. Here's the plan. Let's go for it. We'll, yep. we'll tweak it along the way. So if you can nip that in the bud in, in a crisis situation right up front and you, you react and you, you put a plan in place, that's the first step. The second step is you got to go around and realize people are people and your leaders have to do that because that's kind of, that's an incident driven or an event driven kind of downer party going on, right? Just regular business. Well, first off selection, right? So if anybody in a seal in a boat, in a SEAL team, if they're sitting in a boat, if anybody was complaining about how cold it is, everybody would just lay into them and give them a hard time, right? But they're all been, they've all been selected for these attributes and these traits, so they're not going to, you know, if, if they complain, it's just they know they're going to get, you know, creamed with a bunch of criticism from everybody right. and a lot of jokes and stuff. And then they're going to have to hear about it for the next two years whenever anybody gets drunk. Hey, remember that time Joe was crying <laughs> in the boat about how cold it was? Yeah. So there's a price to be paid. But, you know, in a normal business, normal organization, you don't have the, that kind of luxury unless you design it that way and stay strict in that design. So one way is your selection process. 
if you're going to be in a dynamic organization, whether it's a very creative organization or, or, or an organization that's designed to grow, and so it's going to constantly be scaling and kind of reinventing itself, you have to screen and hire for people that are okay with that. If you're going to do a lot of project work, you have to you know, hire and screen for people that are okay shifting from one focus to another focus, working with one group to another group. Because people are comfortable where people are comfortable. There are people that do a fantastic job focused in a cubicle on a very limited set of, of issues and a very tight lane and authorities, and they will perform brilliantly for you. You take a bunch of people like that and stick them in a room and say, I want you to create something as a team, and they fall apart. <laughs> that's, not, that's not the way they're wired. So you can actually create a bad situation by either hiring the wrong kind of people for those dynamics or you can create a, a, a better situation and a, and a higher probability of high morale and, and less of the, of the low morale in general or in response to an event or crisis if you screen for those other attributes. Yeah. So when you talk about success or think about success now, how, do, you, do you find it differently, define it differently today than maybe you did 10, 20 years ago? For myself or for... Yeah, I mean, I'd say for your, yeah, specifically for yourself, we're here talking with you, but I'd say for yourself, but also just, just in life in general, as we, I think as we age, as we become more successful ourselves and we've seen things, right. Life experience. I think for me, I know I've, I've changed my definition of success sure. over time. If I was going to put it in a bumper sticker, I'd say survival equals success. <laughs> if you were a business owner and you survive, yeah. And that doesn't mean maybe the, the first business you start, you know, it doesn't last forever. It may be that you survive as a business person and you build a second business or you build a third business or yeah. you buy a franchise because you weren't very good at building businesses. And then you're good at, you know, as long as you survive, you're winning. As long as you survive, you're, you're successful. Um, if you're learning, it's the same thing. I think learning is survival and trying to be as open-minded and objective as you possibly can every day all kinds of different inputs from all kinds of sources allows you to learn and become stronger, which adds to your survival and the survival leads to success over the long term. Yeah. yeah. So when you, when you think about your comfort zone, I like to call these things, your comfort zone callus, right? We have calluses on our hands from maybe working outside or playing golf, doing whatever people do. How do you bust through the comfort zone callus? Because I always tell people like, if you're watching this, the circle is really small you break through it the first time it gets a little bit bigger and then a little bit bigger. And then all of a sudden now the things I may do 20 years into business would have scared the absolute daylights out of me 20 years ago. Right. So what have you done to maybe reposition uh, yourself to bust through that comfort zone and do it uh, on things that you've done around the world that, uh, you know, I've not even had a thought of it being able to do because I wasn't a Navy SEAL, but how did you do that? How did you bust out of the comfort zone callus? Well, I don't, I don't, seek that particular kind of challenge, that level of challenge uh, lightly. And so if it's not aligned with say what I'm doing as, as a business, um, I'd make a decision. I want to, I want to do it. So, so six years ago, I read the uh, four hour work week. By Tim Ferriss. Yep. Tim Ferriss. Right. And in there, they had this living your bucket list. And so I'm reading this and most of the, the guidance he was giving had to do with, but I guess most people's bucket list is to travel and all that. And he said, well, you know, travel now while you're healthy and you can do things. Well, I've been to 44 plus countries and a lot of them multiple times. So travel wasn't what I wanted to do. So I listed my bucket list and I thought, okay, I'll do this exercise. 
And I put down, I want to be able to play the guitar. I want to be able to speak Spanish fluently because I've tried to speak Spanish fluently 10 times in my life. And um, I want to get a black belt. And because I've had a couple of different kinds of brown belts and I've always moved around the Navy. I always had to stop. And I want to write a fiction book and I want to write a nonfiction business book. So that was my, that was it. And all <laughs> So they weren't really like easy experiences I could price out, like he was saying, by going to Expedia. Yeah. So I, I looked at all of them. And the other component in that book was about how to inventory your time. Go, go seven days. How much time are you spending on things that have no bearing on your, on or any value to you that are old habits? Well, my old habit was I was a news junkie. And because of my former life with, you know, managing money for eight years, I, I was watching CNBC in the morning. I was listening to CNBC on on satellite radio on the way to work. I mean, it, yeah. all this stuff had nothing to do with my day job. It had nothing to do with anything else. It was just with every profession I had changed, I was still, I still cared about, you know, geopolitical debates and, you know, military strategy. And that was all wasted effort, really wasted time. So when I added all that up, I had, man, I had something like two and a half hours a day, every day times seven days. And I wouldn't really miss it if I just, convert it to something else. So you're supposed to convert it to, to something you want to do. Yeah. Not, not necessarily your bucket list. I decided to convert it to my bucket list. And so I picked the writing first. So I wrote the first time travel book because of that exercise. So instead of watching CNBC, you said, I'm going to, instead of watching it, right. now I'm going to write. Right. Yep. And I actually listened to audible um, books about writing, about character development, all that on the way to work instead of listening to CNBC on the way to work. So everything was kind of towards that focus. I, I got a, um, I got into a, a regimen where I woke up at five, got coffee, started writing at about five fifteen, and finished around uh, six fifteen. Then I worked out and I was in at work at eight o'clock in the morning. And once I got used to that, it didn't affect anybody. I mean, it was dark out when, when I was done with my writing and everything, it was dark out. So I was getting all that in, and I still had a little of that two and a half hours left over if I wanted to use it. And that's how I ended up going down the path of writing the books. And then about a year later, I started going into uh, lessons in Thai boxing, Muay Thai. And, and that was pretty interesting because I, I did martial arts for a long time when I was younger, but I wanted to get a black belt. Well, in Muay Thai, they don't really have a black belt. They have like an equivalency to black belt and there's a test and everything. And it took me three years and two months before I got it. Wow. So that, so the metaphor or the analogy yeah. about getting punched in the face. Yeah. So that here I was a CEO, you know, did very well in business. You know, I really, I didn't feel like I was off my game in almost all categories of my life. And I was in right. there getting beat up because I was too slow, <laughs> too old. And, uh, and I didn't too really old know. Too slow. Yeah. So, that was a challenge. That was, I mean, every day I'd go to lunch for like an hour and a half of training and, and then I'd come back and I'd be limping and somebody go, you okay? And I said, yeah. And I had a big smile on my face, you know, it's like I learned a lot yeah. <laughs> in an hour and a half. So that's, you know, a couple of examples of how I decided to get outside of my comfort zone and do something that I wasn't doing. It wasn't for work. It wasn't, you know, and, um, yeah. And I pushed through till I completed them. I love it. I love it. Uh, mentors have been a big part of your life. Have you had people you've kind of been there, done that for you and you've reached out to? Yes. Um, funny story. Uh, there's different kinds of reunions, et cetera, in the SEAL teams. 
and we have a, a seal museum down in Fort Pierce, Florida. And it's, it's pretty big. It's got all kinds of great stuff there. It's got the actual lifeboat that uh, Captain Phillips, you know, that whole oh, movie wow. and everything where the yeah. seals were shot the guys. And that's actually there. There's lots and lots of good stuff there. And um, there's a bar across this little bridge nearby that everybody goes to when they have a, this reunion. So I went over there with my wife and some other friends and we're sitting in the corner and I said, well, you know, that guy's sitting over there. That guy was my, my mentor when I was an enlisted seal. He's a Navy cross winner. And, you know, mm. his nickname was the Eagle and he was really great and everything. And she goes, really? And so she goes over there and says, Hey, do you remember Marty strong? And he's, Oh yeah. He goes, he's right over there. Cause she knew I wouldn't just walk up to him. Cause I hadn't seen him in <laughs> 30 years. Thanks a lot, honey. And then the guy sitting next to him turns back to look over where I am. And it was a guy named Duke Leonard, who was my mentor when I was an officer. And those two guys combined were like my whole career. They, they taught wow. me my, my philosophy, my mindset, you know, pretty much how I did things. So I walked over there and there they were sitting side by side like bookends. It was a really weird moment. So those are the two guys in the SEAL teams. One was all about combat and, and how to lead, lead and plan and in combat. Uh, that was the, the first guy. The second guy was all about how to plan complex missions, hostage rescue missions, use air assets, a lot of complex stuff. And he was a very calm guy. And when things were, were crazy and I watched him and I emulated him. So that was great. Um, when I went into UBS, I, I wasn't a sales guy. So I saw a couple of, of pretty good salesmen that had nothing to do with money. And they kind of explained the sales game, how tough it was, what I, you know, find your, find your sweet spot. For me, it was doing seminars to grow your business and, yep. and that helped there. And then I have, there's, there's one board member I have right now that's been a mentor for me on mergers and acquisitions and a lot of the financial mechanics associated with private equity. And yeah, so there's always been somebody there. And, and of course I, I end up being a mentor to a lot of people one way or the other. Sure. Over time. Yeah. It's, it's important, right? I mean, for those people listening, I mean, I think just, it's amazing to me, the people that will just give you time if you just ask for it. And I think that's the key your wife was kind of almost in a sense, calling you out on that one, right? Like if you just, if you just go and ask that person for help, people like Marty strong will be there to offer help for no money. I, I agree. I, when my first uh, when I first started in financial services, I picked up the success mag the success magazine that the company had, where they kind of had showcasing, you know, financial advisors that were doing well in different categories, and so I called them up. I kind of did like a Napoleon Hill, you know, thing. Said, "Do you mind?" And every single one of them, and these some of these guys were millionaires based yeah. on sales, you know. Yeah. Every single one of them didn't just give me the time of day. Some of them said, "Let me set up another call." So yeah. I can give you, give you the time you, you deserve. And yeah. I eventually kind of ended up with maybe one or two that aligned with what I wanted to do. And they would check in on me, you know, they say how things yeah. going. Like, yeah. I, I didn't want to bug them. And yeah, I, I don't think amazing. I've had nobody ever say no. Nope. Absolutely. Yeah. Amazing. I love it. So talk to us about these, uh, these two books, one coming out this year, be nimble. The next one coming out next year, be visionary. Tell us about those, what inspired you and uh, what should we look for in those books? Okay. So Be Visionary is um, about strategy, strategy development. That's the one that's coming out at the end of 22. Be Nimble is available right now for pre-sale on Amazon. 
And, uh, and you can go to Amazon under Marty Strong, or you can go to my website at martystrongbenimble.com, and there's a link there. The, um, the underlying premise of being nimble, which I almost named to be humble, and we've kind of touched on a lot of that already. You know, if, you're, if you can ascend to a point of intellectual humility as a leader or as a person, it allows you to open your mind and start accepting information and also seeking information from different sources. And I found that the next step after you've done that, after you start to see the world the way it really is, not the way it was taught to you in business school, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it, it sets you up to be nimble, to be agile. If you think the definition of, of being rigid is kind of doing the same thing over and over again. And I use in the book, I use lots of different examples. I mean, one I, I talk about is would, if somebody asked you a question about the capital of a country, whatever, would you, would you go and look up, you know, the answer in a, an encyclopedia Britannica from 1974, no. but it would have been accurate, right? It would have been Very correct accurate. in 1974, which means your high school education, your, your college education, your graduate education, pretty much the first off you're being taught history. So you're already behind the learning curve. You're not being taught yeah. what's happening tomorrow. You're being taught history. So there are a lot of people that get stuck in their ways and have a hard time being agile and nimble and structuring, you know, clever and, and creative solutions, either operationally or even or strategically because they can't let it go. And I'm talking about the good and the bad. So if you, if you let go of the baggage, you got to let go of the fact that you had a great sales year or you got a bonus or you got promoted because that's holding you back too. That's reinforcing all of your, your biases from yesterday back. And if you had a really bad day or you, or you got fired from your last job and you're in a new job and you're in the first couple of weeks, you can't carry that around, you know, like a ball and chain either, because it doesn't help. It doesn't help with what's happening today and going forward. So um, being nimble is all those things. It's a, a lot of all the things we've already talked about today. And I was inspired to write that particular book because I was doing a lot of mentoring internal to my organization, but also externally. And I thought, well, you know, I, I keep kind of coming back to these same themes. I think I'll just write them down. Maybe I'll write an article. And then the whole Tim Ferriss thing kind of kicked in. I said, well, I was going to write a business book. So I took the outline for an article and kind of blew it out. And eventually that became a book proposal. And then I submitted it to a bunch of publishers and I got picked up and, and I was off to the races. Um, and I wrote most of it during the uh, first eight or nine months of COVID. So wow. I had the a little time on our hands, didn't we? Yeah. And you know, so that that's the one that's coming out soon and uh, be visionary kind of takes up where that left off more on the, the value of having a vision and using vision and strategy uh, in place of optimization and a focus on short-term metrics and short-term gratification, because that's also choking besides choking off, looking at the horizon and looking around the corner and seeing if there's somebody there with a baseball bat getting ready to waylay you. Um, you also don't see the opportunities. You don't realize that, you know, you could have gone a little bit to the left and you might've been able to, you know, grab a hold of something or see something down the road and you don't invest. If you don't believe in the future, you don't think of the future. You, why, why am I going to spend money on training or why am I going to invest in, you know, moving into another state or whatever, if all I'm carrying, all I care about is my, my KPIs, if, you know, today. Yeah. Right. And my, my, and my, my financial metrics for today. Yeah. So that's, that's so, kind of what sucked me into the second book. 
Love it. So uh, check it out at Marty Strong, be nimble, right.com. That's where you can find that pre-order on Amazon. And, and then kind of the last couple of questions here. I think fear, in my opinion, is one of the biggest things that holds people back from taking that next step to taking action, having clarity on their goals, what's important to them. How many of the fears, Marty, that you put in your mind actually came true to the magnitude you put them in your mind to be? <laughs> Not one. Yeah. I love the long pause. It's almost like I set this up for every guest. I mean, it's, yeah. it's literally the longest pause of any question I ask. Yeah. And I ask it every time because I love the question is we all as human beings let things in our mind, the, the, the space between these two ears is so dangerous, isn't it? It's so dangerous. It is. I've got five, five kids and five grandkids. And I have a couple of my kids that, you know, when they were younger, especially that, yeah, they lived a thousand deaths, you know, they, yeah. they anticipated the worst case and, you know, all people are human. I'm human. If, if something happens, like when I, when I heard about that speech, uh, that was going to change our, our world for yeah. the next couple of months, I sat there and I thought, Holy wow, man, what the hell? And then I started thinking, okay, what's the worst that can happen? And then, all right, you know, can, do we have the, the ability to handle the worst that can happen? Yeah. All right. And that whole process for me was probably about five minutes. So yeah. I'd still go through the process. I still have the fear. I still have that, you know, emotional kind of gut punch yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And, but I just, it might, my, my time in that mode, that mind state's much shorter because I can compare it to things. I'm not getting shot at, you know, I've, right. I've, I've You've beat, been there, done that beat cancer twice. You know, I, that like, you know, it's, okay, this isn't as bad as it could be. Right. Right. And I use perspective well, yeah. and, and I love that well, everything you just said there. And I, I call it the bounce back theory. The most successful people I've seen in anything, sports, business, military, they bounce back quicker from bad news than those that want to go home and have the pity party that goes on for weeks and months. And I mean, to your point, this is massive news for your business, right? Five minutes, five yeah. minutes is what you spend on it. And my team, it's a learning opportunity. If they, if they've never been shot at, they've never had any crisis that ever rose to a really high level. This is let's learn from this one. Yeah. You're going to be stronger and better when you're running companies down the road. If you take this in the right, in the right kind of, you know, framework yep. and see it as a positive rather than a negative. Yeah. I love that, man. That's great, great feedback, great wisdom. So final question for you is if you had to go back and, and tell Marty strong, 10, 15 years ago, give that guy some advice. What's the advice you'd give that guy? I think it goes back to the survival. Equals <laughs> Just survive, winning. man. Survival equals winning and winning equals success. Whatever game you pick, stay in it, learn everything you can. Don't let any short-term negative setbacks, whatever, you know, knock you off your, your course. And, um, and it'll all work out as long as you, you keep doing that. You know? show up. Strategy create a plan, build it, execute it, optimize it, create a new strategy, build a plan, repeat. I like it. And, and the, to your point on that too, is the plan isn't the perfect, it may be the perfect plan today, but that doesn't mean it's the perfect plan a day, a week, a month, a quarter from now yeah. and be okay with that. Yeah. It stinks to have to uh, completely unravel a, a plan that's brand new, you know, like fresh paint yeah. smell. It happens. You have to do it. And, and, and in the SEAL teams, it's every mission plan is briefed to, an incredible degree. And I've been on, I've led missions where we anticipated, you know, for months and briefed all kinds of senior leaders and generals and four stars. And, 
And then we got there and everything was different. And I got everybody in a, in a little huddle. This is true. Okay. Grabbed some sticks and rocks and stuff. And it was like a pickup basketball game. Mm. You three guys go right. You three guys go left. And at this time, we're going to come in the middle. You guys cover this side. If anything, real simple. The whole plan, months of planning and rehearsing, right out the window. Hmm. It's amazing. And that's amazing. where that con- contingent thinking has got to be a part of yeah. training for leaders too. So uh, we know Marty Strong, be nimble.com. Uh, where else can our listeners find more of you? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn under Marty Strong, and I've got uh, an Instagram that's at Martin L. Strong. And in any of those places you can go, uh, okay. Instagram is pretty informative. We will put that in the show notes. So check down below if you're listening to this on a, on a podcast station. Check it out. But Marty Management, awesome having you. Love the wisdom. Got a couple pages of notes here, which is always good. Uh, but really appreciate you being on the circuit of success. Thanks, Brett. It's been a lot of fun. Tune in next week for another episode of The Circuit of Success with Brett Gilliland on the lineupmedia.fm podcast network. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and through our website, circuitofsuccess.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and email any questions to info at circuitofsuccess.com. This podcast was a presentation of lineupmedia.fm.